The first reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. It can be found on page 1004 in the Church Bibles. Page 1004. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Staying in Mark uh, chapter 2, we carry on at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then we turn to Isaiah 58 on page 745 in the Church Bibles. Page 745, Isaiah 58, and we'll read verses 13 and 14. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please, or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Could you turn back, please, to Mark chapter 2? And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word speaks to us today as much as it did in the first century. And I pray that you may speak to all of us right now in our very different situations, coming as we've come to church today in many different places. Lord, speak to us and bless us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the sermon today is What's So Different About Jesus? Jesus constantly surprises people. He surprised the people of first century Palestine as he was not the Messiah that people were expecting. They were expecting some political leader coming to set up an earthly kingdom. And he surprises us today. He was and is markedly different from any other leader Not surprising when you know he is God. And I suppose one of the besetting sins of today, one of the besetting sadnesses, is that people today have very little idea of who Jesus is and what he's really like. So hopefully, as we go through this, some of those ways in which he's different will come out. And the first thing to say is this. Jesus was different in his attitude to people. No one was beyond his reach or concern. Look at verses 13 to 17. Now Jesus was at this point preaching in Galilee, uh, the region at the northern end of the inland sea or lake of the same name. And as he walked, we read that he, comes across a, he came across a tax collector, Levi, sitting in his booth. Now Levi, in fact, was Matthew who wrote uh, the first gospel. Jewish tax collectors, many of us will know, were regarded as traitors to their nation. They exacted what taxes were required by the authorities and then took a slice for themselves. Not surprisingly, therefore, they were usually wealthy but incredibly unpopular. And no doubt Levi would have been ostracized by most people, including the religious leaders. And I imagine, just picture the scene, Jesus is walking along by the lakeside and there is Levi in his booth, And I imagine the disciples made just to walk on, ignoring him, as presumably everyone else did. But Jesus stops and looks at him. 
And he speaks to him in such a way that Levi immediately got up and followed him. Now, what was it that made a hardened and dishonest tax collector do that? Surely it was the authority with which people spoke. And again, I think we have such a small view today of the authority of Jesus, of who he is. But Levi realized, and he got up and he walked after Jesus. It was the authority with which he spoke, but also the fact that here was someone who'd bothered to talk to him rather than sneer, who could see that behind the bravado and the toughness was someone who now knew that all the money in the world could not ache the cure in his soul, someone who knew that Jesus had the answer to that. And clearly this had such an impact on Levi that he called all his work colleagues and other contacts to a party at his home. If you look at verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It had such an impact on Levi that instead of being ashamed of this new person he was following, he said, you've all got to come, you've got to hear this amazing person who is so different from anything we've seen before. And uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, criticized him for the company he was keeping. Why did he not stay with people who were decent and respectable instead of riffraff like tax collectors and other sinners? Now, this happened to Jesus again and again. He himself quoted some of the criticism leveled at him. Matthew quotes Jesus' words in his gospel. Look at this glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I say here, what about you and me? Do we only speak about our faith to those that we think are easy targets for the gospel? What about the people we know who have a terrible reputation? The person in the office who always sails close to the wind? The girl in the tennis club who's incredibly unpopular? By contrast, what about our boss? A person of the utmost integrity, but who proclaims often and often that they have no need of God. Yes, we are called to go out to the poor and the vulnerable, but this passage tells us we are also to go right across the social scale to those whose spiritual needs may be much more hidden. Do we, like Jesus, look beyond the facade? Are we different in our attitude to people? But there's more in this incident, because what was Jesus' reply? Look at verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The mission of Jesus was to go as a spiritual doctor to all those like Matthew, all those who, like him, knew there was a sickness in his soul that needed putting right. And that sickness was to do with sin. In following Jesus, Matthew's soul sickness was cured. His life was transformed And he went on to live a life of extraordinary impact for the gospel. And it's very moving, isn't it, to see two young men that we've seen today, as it were, setting out on life. And those of us who are older, I think, can all look back and think we had great dreams, we had great ideals. But actually, the key dream, the key ideal to have is to know that at the end of our lives, we can look back and know that through God, through us, has made a great impact for the gospel, that our lives have counted 
for eternal values, not just the values of this world. What does soul sickness feel like? It may be a vague sense of unease. You may have made or be on the way to making a great success in the world's eyes. You may have married someone like that. But somehow all the trappings and the glittering prizes are not enough. So it may be a vague sense of unease, or it may be something much more dramatic. Listen to these words. I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has some day to cry aloud from the rooftop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I find those words incredibly haunting. They were spoken by Oscar Wilde shortly before his death in 1900. That is what soul sickness is like. Millions have sensed that. And yet millions through the centuries have discovered, like Matthew, that only Jesus can cure it, and he can cure it wonderfully. Perhaps someone today feels that they're suffering from that kind of soul sickness. Well, if that's you, do something about it. Speak to one of the clergy before you go or the friend who's brought you to church. Start following Jesus, the great physician of your soul. And note the words that Jesus said at the end of verse 17. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's only one kind of person that Jesus cannot help. That is the person who considers themselves righteous, who sees no need of a soul doctor, who will say things like, I may have done some things that were not quite right, but basically I'm fine. Basically, I'm living quite a good life. Basically, they don't put it this way, I am self-righteous. I don't need God. Pray for anyone you know who's like that. Pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would open their eyes to their true state before God. So Jesus was different in his approach to people. And now we come to two shorter sections. Secondly, he was different in his approach to religious observance. With his coming, everything was changed. Look at verse 18. Um, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new uh, wineskins. The disciples of John the Baptist were fasting either because he was in prison at this point or possibly as a sign of repentance. The Pharisees were fasting at this time twice a week, although the law of Moses, which they professed to follow, only commanded a fast on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus' disciples said, why aren't we fasting too? And Jesus' reply was to compare himself with the bridegroom and them as guests at a wedding. 
Since a wedding was a joyful occasion, he said to them, it would be quite wrong to fast in that time. But look at verse 20. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Now that is a direct reference to Jesus' death that was coming up, one of the earliest references in the gospel. So Jesus was aware that while it was a joyous time when he was physically with them, there would be a time of sorrow, but of course followed by joy. And then Jesus went on to talk about the change he was bringing in with the kingdom. It wasn't only with fasting, it was everything. And I love this. When I was a student at university, I have to tell you, I did not enjoy being a Christian. I went to university uh, thinking, I'm going to kick over the traces a bit. So I knew the religious language, and when I was with Christian students, and I did join the Christian Union, I knew what to say. When I was with friends who were, in fact, I'd never met an atheist till I went to university. I was brought up in very religious Northern Ireland. Um, And when I was talking with atheists, and I could see the conversation was coming around to saying, and what about you, Tricia? Where do you stand? I got very adept at steering the conversation away. I didn't want to be put on the spot. And frankly, I found at the Christians I'd come across, now this was a fault in me, not in them, quite difficult. I went to my first Christian Union meeting in a black leather skirt and black leather boots, which I thought was quite normal clothing. Apparently it caused a sensation. (laughs) And um, I thought, wow, so the way I dress has to change. And I felt increasingly constrained. And this is what I love about Jesus. Uh, There's another time I can tell you the story of what happened to me, but basically I discovered that Jesus said, Tricia, I want you to follow me, but be yourself. You can have fun and be a Christian. You can be yourself and be a Christian. And that, for me, was a great revelation. And this is what Jesus was trying to say to these people. He said, now I'm coming in, everything is changing. Everything has changed. He talks about the new wine and the old wineskins. He talks about a patch of clothing. Um, the patch of you try and patch an old piece of cloth with a new unshrunken piece of cloth. The garment gets wet. The new bit will shrink and it makes a bigger tear. If uh, you put uh, new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins have got hardened and they're not elastic. The new wine is poured in. It's quite gassy and it can cause, it can uh, uh, explode And so the wineskins break because they're too hard and everything is lost. And this was Jesus saying, I have come, everything has changed. It's no good trying to mix old religion with what I'm bringing. Now in the early church, attempts were made to do just that. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes to the Galatians who'd become Christians. But then some heretic teachers were coming in saying, oh yes, you become Christians, but you also need to follow all the Jewish observances like circumcision. And Paul says, you know, you were set free by the gospel. Why go back again to all those old rules and regulations? The Christians at Galatia were unsettled, and Jesus wanted, did not want them to go back into that kind of slavery. And, and what they were doing was also trying to uh, accommodate the world. It wasn't just religious teaching, but the world. And Jesus was saying, you can't mix it. And We have to say to ourselves, are there ways in which even now we may be trying to accommodate the world's thinking with our Christian faith? Christians have always been called to be countercultural, 
not to go along with whatever is, is popular. And our brothers and sisters through the centuries have died for that truth because they refused to go along with what everyone else was thinking. To take another example, you may feel bound up by self-imposed rules and regulations or rules that others have tried to impose on you. Now, I am not talking about the clear and unequivocal teaching of scripture, the stuff that we may find difficult, like heaven and hell, but it's there and Jesus taught it. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about matters such as how you dress, as long as it's decent, how you worship. Do you put your hands in the air? Do you keep them by your side? We're not called to judge in that way. What kind of method of evangelism do you use? Do you know it is possible in this country to be judged by whether or not you do Alpha or Christianity Explored? Unbelievable. That kind of one-fits-all prescription is not God's will for you or me. Are you living with the new wineskins? Jesus was different in his approach to religious observance. With his coming, everything had changed. And if ever you come across people who are trying to push you into a corner to make you what you're not, go back to this passage and say, Jesus has set me free. And thirdly, uh, uh, a key example of that religious observance was the Sabbath. Jesus was different in his approach to the Sabbath. It was made for our delight in God's goodness. When Jesus walked the earth, a whole host of regulations had grown up around the Sabbath. All work was forbidden. Work was classified under 39 different headings. Four of these were reaping, winnowing, uh, where the good wheat was separated from the useless chaff, threshing and preparing a meal. The pulling of ears of corn was reaping and therefore considered to be work, which is relevant here. Even walking was forbidding, was forbidden. So was kindling or extinguishing a fire. So here, as we read in verse 23, when the disciples were picking some ears of corn, the, the Pharisees took the opportunity to criticize them. And they said to Jesus, look at verse 24, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus answered the Pharisees by referring them back to an incident in the Old Testament that they would have known well about David, their revered king. When on the run from King Saul, he entered the tabernacle, and as he and his companions were tired and hungry, he took for himself and them the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for priests to eat. The Pharisees knew that scripture didn't criticize David for this breaking of the rules. Now, Jesus linked this with the Sabbath because he claimed that the Sabbath was made for the good of humanity, not for the sake, per se, of following the rules. And he went on to make for what for them was the even more astonishing claim that he, the Son of Man, was Lord even of the Sabbath. Only God could make a claim like that. If you go back to Genesis 2, we read, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. 
And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. And then in Exodus 20, we read the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your times. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God as our creator designed us in such a way that we would have a Sabbath once a week. He knows what our bodies and our minds need. God is the one who invented the work-life balance. Very current in today's global world, you know, we talk about having a work-life balance. Well, God actually invented that at the beginning of time. And we ignore that at our peril. Which is why um, uh, I asked that, that those two verses from Isaiah 58 would be read out. I don't know if you noticed it, but as you went through, the I saying it said, if you call the Sabbath a delight, if you honor it by not going your own way, then you will find your joy in the Lord. In a word, when we get the Sabbath right, the answer is joy. God wants us to enjoy the Sabbath, which normally we observe on Sundays. I wonder what your experience of the Sabbath is. Until 1994, almost no shops could trade on a Sunday in England and Wales. There was no professional sport. There was no school sport. All that happened on Saturdays. Everything in most towns and villages was very, very quiet. And I have to say, sometimes it could be very, very boring. Now all that has changed. Instead of Sunday being a special day, it's no different at any rate from Saturdays. And as a Christian, you have to work hard to keep it special. Now, that word special is very important to me. Because long before I knew that I would marry a clergyman, I made a habit of asking clergy children who'd grown up as Christians and kept going as Christians, what was it that helped them do that? And I'll never forget the answer of one girl. She looked me in the eye and she said, Tricia, Sundays were always special. Sundays were always special. And... uh, when our girls were little, and when we got married, we determined we would do that. On a day when it could easily appear to a child that daddy or mummy spent all day in church, this girl I spoke to remembered it as a day of fun and joy. So when our girls were growing up, we always had pudding at Sunday lunch. We often don't have pudding during the week. Sundays were the days for sweets or cake, unless, I have to tell you, unless their father picked the girls up from school, And it so happened that nearly always they stopped off at the village bakery and got a cream cake. But anyway, the principal was there. And for 13 years, I didn't attend the evening service, but instead we had fun sitting in front of a log fire if it was winter, reading great books or playing games while Daddy was out taking the evening service. And when our girls were younger and not making their own decisions, they were not allowed to do homework on Sundays. I still remember one of them saying how glad she was we had that rule as she would get too tired working non-stop. Now, again, you know, we mustn't be legalistic about this. And as they grew up, you know, they they changed in their thinking. But the principle is that we tried to make Sundays special. And that quote from Isaiah, the Old Testament, shows how God intended Sundays to be. A delight, a time to honour God 
a time not to go our own way. And as I've said, it's easy to get legalistic about this, but I'd encourage you to think if there are ways you could make Sundays more of a rest day, more of a delight, more of a time to honour God. And of course, we have to make caveats for those who do have to work on Sundays, not just clergy, but those who work in the emergency and caring professions. We then have responsibility to make sure that we keep the Sabbath. And I freely confess that in the past, Charles and I have not always been good at that. But that has changed, and we're the better for it. So be creative. I'm going to make some very radical suggestions here. Could you take a Sabbath each Sunday from social media, from emailing? Could you cook Sunday lunch on Saturday? Are your children realising that Sundays are special? Are there team or social activities that are keeping you from church? If so, why not just say to people, I'm sorry, church is non-negotiable. I'd love to see you afterwards. We will all come to different conclusions about how we do this, how we observe the Sabbath. But actually, the command to observe it is there, not to make us feel gloomy, but for our own good and for our joy. In this passage, Jesus showed how we are meant to use it. So let's bring back the Sabbath. Let's keep Sunday special. Do you value the differentness of Jesus? How much do these principles have a part in your life or mine? In our attitude to people? In the way we live out our faith in the kingdom? In the way we celebrate the Sabbath? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that when you... When there are prohibitions in your word, when you say don't do this or don't do that, it is always for our good, even if we don't understand it at the time. And we thank you so much that when Jesus came, he came to free us from rules and regulations, all these things that were not intended by you at all, because Jesus meant us to live life to the very full and to have it abundantly. So, Father, help us to apply what we've heard right now to ourselves and to honor you in the choices we make. In Jesus' name, amen.